Hey, we've been uh, going through 1 Corinthians together, uh, the portion of the New Testament, um, that section of the Bible that gives us uh, not only the insight into the life of Jesus Christ through the Gospels, but the ongoing work of God um, involving the power, the person of the Holy Spirit, the victory of Christ. We see these letters throughout um, the New Testament, as we call it, um, that give us really instruction, insight, uh, encouragement, uh, awareness of how to live this new life. I've called this series um, Called Out, Called Up. God's invitation to live and love at a higher level because really that's where you and I live. We're called out, meaning not, well, you kind of were called out. You ever been called out on something? It's like, oh, that's uncomfortable. But we're kind of were. It's called sin. And so he called us out in the sense of who we are. He revealed his hope, his truth, his forgiveness through the person Jesus Christ. And so then giving you new life, you're, you're called out of this world. You physically stay in it, in a, you know you know that, but you're no longer oriented. This is no longer your priority, your value base. You're in the world, but not of it. Called out, but also called up, not to depart yet, the rapture, or your individual departure to be with the Lord, that will take place. But at this time, our focus, our um, awareness is to look to him. Where we used to look to this realm, natural realm, the horizontal, if you would, with its worldly wisdom and values that are contrary to God. We're now called to look to him instead of here, vertical as opposed to just strictly horizontal. And, And I believe that's something for us to remember. That we're called out of this world, we're called up, we're invited, it's... It's actually a choice. We're invited. We can, we can live and love at a higher level. And I believe um, it's something that's a, a need for all of us to learn to live in that level and that awareness of God's presence with the knowledge of his purpose, with the direction that he is, is leading us. And so I love the Bible for many reasons, but the relatability, you can relate to it. You can, you can get it. You know, it's not just because you determined to, but God actually wants you to understand his word. And he, he teaches you. The Bible tells us that of your own effort, the natural man, you cannot reason it through. You cannot sort it out. You cannot discern the, the things of the spirit. For these things are spiritually discerned. As Jonah prayed earlier for, and Greg as well, for, for God to, to really open his word and to teach us. We want him to, to teach us his word. And what's fascinating is the way he has assembled what we know to be the word of God. It's not just policy and procedure. It's not, right? I mean, he could have just said it that way. Listen, here's how you do it. This is when you do it, why you do it, how you do it, get it right or die. I mean, it could have been a policy manual, right? I mean, let's face it. He created us here. Here's how you function. But he didn't create it that way. He actually brought it to you and me in a relatable sense. In other words, it's about people who experience the presence of the living God and and they put into practice this relationship. They they chose to live according to that relationship. So you have all these characters, individuals, personalities. I I think of Peter, who we know from this account in the New Testament, in the Gospels and, and the book of Acts and later through two letters that were penned under his name that God brought forth. But he was a fisherman. And, and I want to go over a few things to start out because I know we have to get our mind there a little bit in the sense of just really being receptive. 
And the word of God is for today. It's not distant and, and, you know, detached from our world. Peter was a fisherman. He, He ran his own business. But the Roman authority was over the Jewish people. And the Roman officials were corrupt. They taxed his business heavily, as with all the other Jewish people. And Peter knew that there must be more to this life than what he was experiencing. And maybe you can relate to that. Maybe you perceive or have come to realize, even since 2020, it's been easier to see, that government officials can be corrupt. That influences and powers over you have a practice that, that it's, 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 just, it's just not how it should be. You understand taxation. You get it. See, Peter knew that. We can relate to that. But deep down, he knew there was a better way of living. Truth seemed to be smothered by the, the Roman immorality, um, the, in, the affluence, you know, the greed, uh, the selfish pursuits. And even more, Peter knew his own anger and pride and selfish ways. See, you and I, we can look and we can line ourselves up with what he's talking about. Could we not agree? Is there immorality in our world? It's not Roman, but it kind of is. Is there in our world, so to speak, affluence in America? There is. Even though some of us feel poor, this isn't the poorest place on the planet. It's rather quite affluent, quite honestly. And we have, do you, know, you guys think about how you have, you have servants. Do you realize that? You look at me like, oh, he finally snapped. No, you, you do. I mean, you, you have someone who cuts your wood and brings it in and heats your house. It's called the gas company. You have somebody pumping the water from the well. Well, okay, they don't do it that way. You just pay your water bill. It all just shows up. We, we have these services that are just... They're almost like rights to, to Americans, but many people in the world does not have that. We have access to various forms of medical care, and many people don't have it. So there's this, this stuff that we can relate to. They experience it in that culture. They're in Corinth in, in this early, this first century. But see, Peter, apart from all that, he also knew himself. You know, he was uh, a bit spontaneous in his personality expressions and his type. Some have jokingly referred to him as the apostle with the foot-shaped mouth. He seemed to speak and then think and then go, oops, those don't line up. But understand, Peter is a real-life person who met Jesus, and there was something beautiful. There was something genuine. There was something godly, yet not religious, about Jesus. A very interesting distinctive. Godly, but not religious. See, the religious expression of that day, that the leadership had elevated themselves above God through their practices and application. They basically thought that they, had, they were better than everyone else. And Jesus comes along, and he's what we would say nowadays, down to earth, real world, basically blue collar kind of guy. And he engaged, and Peter picked up on this, like, man, this guy, he's, there's just different, different about him. He's a carpenter, but yet he brings words of life and hope and truth. Well, you know the rest of the story. Peter is changed, born again, 
Peter begins a new life. And I want you to understand that Peter didn't just follow a new fad. Peter didn't just clean up his life and get religious and find a new way to do things. Peter met Jesus Christ and Peter was born again. And he begins this new life, learning how to love, learning what it means to follow Jesus. As he was spontaneous early on, and and certain things start soaking and ruminating and becoming a part of him, and he's being changed more into the qualities and the expression and the love of Christ, that he would say in, in his last letter, if you would, the second Peter chapter three, verse 18, his exhortation after meeting Jesus and walking with him for years, he would say to you and I, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and forever. Amen. That's what he experienced, a spontaneous fisherman transformed by the very presence of God through the work of Jesus Christ. Born again. And I can't say it enough in the sense of you can't just clean up your act. You can't just start going to church and decide, hey, man, I'm midlife, or hey, I messed up, or hey, I might die soon. The doctor says I ain't looking good. I got to get right with God. And so you try to do things different. You know what God said? You know, Jesus specifically said to a person who decided religion might be the way to get things done. He said, Nicodemus, you must be born again. He didn't say, do what you can do, sharpen this and polish that, and it'll all work out. He just said, listen, straight up, dude, you must be born again. You can't take the old life and make it workable. You have to start fresh. There has to be a new life within you. And so we see that in the church. We see Mary and Martha and Lazarus, you know, the siblings that went through an amazing experience. Lazarus died, developed a bit of a stench in a cave, and was raised from the dead. He's got a little bit of a story to tell because, you know, he died again, <laughs> actually. But, you know, just think about what he would tell about what God did for him and how what Jesus impacted his life, how Jesus impacted his life. You got the Apostle Paul who was used mightily by, by God to um, convey truth and, and bring forth the word of God through the hand and heart of Paul. You got Lydia and the Philippian jailer and Thomas and James. And, and in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, we're told about you know, Chloe's household. This group of people that were impacted, their lives were changed because they were born again. They had faith in Jesus Christ and they grew in that relationship. Chloe's household has an awkward thing to deal with because there are some things that had come into the church in Corinth that were not right. It was more of this world than of the, of the Lord. And they had to write this letter. She chose, they chose to write this letter to Paul and said, here's the deal, man. We're not trying to be a rat. We're, we're not, you know, we just, just got to say, these things don't seem right. So now we have this letter in response to that, you know, their response, Chloe's response. God, I, I don't know what to do. How do we grow in, the, in our relationship with you, Jesus? So I'm painting this picture for you and I to see that it's, it's the same today. There's nothing new under the sun. You know, there's, there's a different covering or a different coating or a different color, but it's, there's nothing new under the sun. We we're facing the same challenges that they faced. But understand, we're not just changing our lives. We're living new life. New life given through faith in Jesus Christ. The body of Christ, as the Bible describes you and I, were his body expressed and extended to this world because he 
he left. He departed in the bodily form and then empowered us to be his body to this world. We're knit together by the presence of God. We're taught. We're, 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 we're being brought to an understanding of this new life. There's always been two conflicts with Christians. Do you realize that? There's this conflict. You're in this world and not of this world. And then there's this conflict. The old you and the new you. See, the old nature, who you were before you were born again, is still present, but it's not in charge. You, you give that over to the Lord Jesus Christ when you were born again. So now he calls the shots. God leads you. And so there's always been this conflict between the old and the new and the world and the heavenly realm and, and how do you live this new life? That's why we're here today, honestly, to understand in a deeper way how to walk closer to Je with Jesus, how to live a life that honors him, how to have a life of purpose, and how to know really what, our, what, our, what is his will for our lives. The connection a little bit, hopefully to draw uh, some understanding. Let's think about Corinth. Let me just give you a brief statement about the city. It was a port city, so in that time with you know, shipping and all the commerce oriented you know, right there in and around Corinth and other cities, but it was a crucial city, and how would it be? How, how could we compare it? Well, if you blend the perversion of San Francisco with the ungodliness of New York, and you cover it with the commerce and pleasure-seeking of Los Angeles, you have first century Corinth. It was that big of a mess, seriously. In this letter, we're actually, hopefully you have been, because I know I have been, will be challenged. Corinth, Corinth was much like the culture you live in. Very much like it. Affluence, comfort, opportunity, Sadly, it was also like the culture you live in, sexually obsessed. Sexually obsessed, morally bankrupt, deeply depraved, and arrogantly indifferent to God. That was Corinth. Does it sound familiar? Does it sound what, you, what you're, you're exposed to and live in? I want to do a quick review because we're in the sixth chapter and I just want to touch on a few things, and partly to help us realize that the Christian experience of our times is not unique to us. We're not in the worst time in human history. I think there's certainly ways you could debate that and discuss it, um, but that's really not the point. The point is, how can we apply these things? Can we learn how to walk according to these things? So let me just give you a quick review. If you're a note taker, I'll give you the address of verses you can look at. But in chapter 1 of 1 Corinthians, in verse 9, we see that, that God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ our Lord. That's common in the Corinthian church and the contemporary church, how it is today. God is faithful. What's also present we see in chapter 1, verse 11, it's been declared to me concerning you, my brethren, that those, by those of Chloe's household, that there are contentions among you. Is that possible? That there's striving and arguing and divisiveness and contentions in the contemporary church. What we know to be the body of Christ, the, the true gathering of his people, is there any wranglings? 
Yeah, to some degree, that's why there's different gatherings. But let's not look outside. There's, that happens right here. You know, all it would take is for us to merge two services and have one service and spend enough time together and we can find plenty of reasons to argue. And that's all you nice people sitting here looking at me. It's just our nature. It's the old nature. We tend to focus on the differences and next thing you know, it becomes a, a point of friction and not unity. So that we, that's something that God addresses. So there's contentions then. There's contentions now in chapter 2, verse 2. We're told that, you know, Jesus, uh, Paul said, I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. So the, the early church recognized his victory was their victory in all things. And it's the same today. We haven't got to the point in, in human history that God no longer knows how to deal with us. He doesn't go, oh my gosh, this is so messed up. I thought, I thought I'd be done with this group by 2020. And here it is, 2023, and I don't know how to deal with their problems. I don't know how to deal with these human issues. I mean, how silly would that be to think that? We have to understand that his victory is our victory even now. Whatever your personal issues may be, whatever your relational stresses may be, whatever your confusion of the cranium that can cause you headaches, whatever it may be, it's not bigger than the Lord you, the, you know. He, he is Lord over all. The, the, the cross... He, he represents and reminds you and I that he died for our sins. He rose from the dead, conquering death and hell and all things that are opposed to God. He conquered them. Our challenge is learning how to live in this life and then hand that stuff over to him and receive from him instruction, power, encouragement, comfort, direction, if you would. We're told in chapter three, as I move through this, picking up the pace, um, Basically, in chapter 3, verse 3, we see that Corinthian church was carnal, which means the same thing. They just put their bodily appetites above their spiritual needs. And so they become more earthly-minded than heavenly-minded. And we know that's true in our own lives personally, if we're honest. We know it's true in the gathering of God's people. What's fascinating about all this is he doesn't send this letter as a letter of condemnation. It's a letter of correction. It's a letter of love saying, hey, you're dealing with these issues. Let me give you direction on, and power on how to deal with it. Chapter four told us that you know, God is for you, not against you. Specifically, verse 14. God is for you, not against you. If we can receive that and believe that and let it transform us, it'll affect how we literally, our countenance, our outlook, our attitude day to day. He is for you, not against you. If he gives you direction, because he knows what's best for you. And man, that is so liberating when we can take hold of that. In chapter five, we looked at the awkwardness of sexual immorality. And quite honestly, I'll just say chapter five, we've seen here just a couple weeks ago, is that sexual immorality is not to be in the church. Sexual immorality is not to be in the church. We've seen from that chapter, it's in the world, and to get away from sexual immorality, you'd have to leave the planet. You'd have to leave this world because it's all around you in the first century and this century as well. So sexual immorality is not to be in the church. And so there's this purging that God is doing, bringing us up to last week when we looked in the beginning of chapter 6 to know who you are. When you know who you are, we're told in chapter 6, we, we concluded in uh, uh, verse 11... That we were, that we, you and I, were, were washed, were justified, 
We're sanctified. We're set apart for his purposes. That's past tense. When you were born again, it was accomplished. So everything pertaining to life and godliness is brought to you and resides within you. Now, does that mean you're perfect? No. It means you're learning how to live. You're learning how to put him first and walk in this truth. And so know who you are, because who you are affects how you are, correct? When you understand who you are, it'll, it'll affect how you live. Leaving, leading us to today, we're going to pray here in just a moment. But let me just say this. The church is by design, by direction, and with God's leadership, church is to influence culture and not the other way around. Yes, culture will be considered, but culture is, we're not to compromise. Don't be drawn into compromise. Don't let social rise above spiritual. What do I mean? You have family members. You have friends. You have coworkers. You have people that don't know the Lord Jesus Christ. And they live lives that are sexually immoral. They live lives that are contrary to the word of God because they don't know the person of God. And so how do you function? How do you live? Do we elevate this relationship and say, ah, I just don't want them to feel uncomfortable. I don't want them to you know, think I'm judging them. So we maybe don't address something or we don't deal with something. Or sadly, sometimes we present to them that we can't accept them because they are a certain way. In reality, it's like, excuse me, we want to basically say, okay, how do I live in this world and not be of this world? How do I deal with the spiritual truths and not let the connection relationally become the priority? I hope you will strive. I hope you will weep. I hope you will pray. I hope you will really long to, to, to know how to make these connections and keep the connections. But never compromise. Never say, okay, I'm going to set the spiritual truths aside to maintain this relationship. Because ultimately, that's a disaster. You know, people want to know the truth. And they want to hear it through transformed lives. They want to see it in eyes of compassion. People that have empathy, like the Lord, who engaged with people, sinners they were called. He engaged with them in such a fashion that they kept coming back to him. Let's pray. God, what an amazing task you've laid before us. A task that we really can't tackle on our own. The, the thought that somehow we would engage with people that, who are a different perception, different principles, different practice than us. And God, we, we, we need your eyes. We need your heart. We need your kindness, your compassion, your empathy. That when we converse, when we connect and talk, Lord, that love is extended without compromise, without saying everything's okay, Lord, but rather teach us to get to the condition of the soul, to be able to address the issues of the heart, use us. And even today, God, prepare us, teach us, walk us through your word, that we would be men and women equipped for your purposes, aware of your will, and led by your word, empowered by your presence, God. Holy Spirit, speak to us this morning, speak to us this day. Walk us through the word that we can be your light in this world. In your name, Jesus. Amen. Well, let's begin in verse 12. You'll have to catch uh, last week's message, if you haven't already, to really catch the totality of the context. Just obviously, we're starting in the middle of the chapter. But ultimately, let's just jump right in. It says in verse 12, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, 
all things are lawful for me, but all things are not helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be brought under the power of any. Foods for the stomach and the stomach for foods, but God will destroy both it and them. Now the body is not for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. And God both raised up the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a harlot? Certainly not. Verse 16. Or, or do you not know that he who is joined to a harlot is one body with her? For the two, he says, shall become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord is one spirit with him. Flee sexual immorality. Every sin that a man does is outside the body, but he who commits sexual immorality sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is the temple for the Holy, of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own? For you were bought at a price, therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. All right, let's just tackle it verse by verse. Let's jump in there in verse 12. We have verse 12, actually, it'll be repeated again as we study through Corinthians. But in verse 12 of chapter 6, we have a, a, a Corinthian motto, not a Christian motto. So this was the Corinthian motto, if you would. Um, all things are lawful, but not everything's helpful. They lean more towards all things are lawful. Meaning in their culture, they did allow many different things in regards to sexual immorality, in regards to forms of, quite honestly, we can call it accurately and not in any way derogatory, we can call it perversion, a deviation from the design to, to pervert it and take it into some other expression. It, it, it's contrary to the design, this issue of sexuality. Well, the Corinthians were like, it's okay, it's all good. You do what you want. It's your body. There's this pursuit of pleasure. And the perception with, with the church there, or not the church, but the, the culture of Corinth, and it actually carries even through from really all, almost all of the Old Testament and, and it's present even in our day. There's this idea that you can pursue, that there's bodily pleasure because sexuality is really at the peak, if you would, by God's design, when it's experienced in his framework, it, it's the peak of human experience in regards to pleasure. Well, the Corinthians thought, well, let's just pursue pleasure. It's okay. It feels good. Do it. You know, it, it, it must be all right. And so, because it felt good, and they, and they realized that that was a common bodily human experience, it must be okay for everybody to pursue pleasure. To the point where if you study much of the Old and New Testament, you know, culture presents this sexuality as a religious experience. Even in Corinth, you could go into one of these pagan temples, and in, in some of them there was like thousands of prostitutes, male and female prostitutes, where you could then go join yourself with a prostitute, with a harlot, and experience this pleasure and, and call it a spiritual experience because it was the peak of human experience. So therefore it was of the designer of God. It was so contrary to God's design for sexuality. Look at the problem. There's two things that we see in this text and in this statement, if you would, that are very important. First of all, there's, there's possession. Meaning all things are lawful for me. Well, are they? According to verse 20, for you and I as a Christian, they're not lawful. 
In other words, they're, they're not relationally okay. Why is that? Well, because verse 20 says to you and me, you were bought at a price, therefore glorify God in your body. So you were bought at a price. This, this experience we have, this born again, new life experience was free to you and me, but it was extremely expensive to God. He paid a really high price. He come as a man in bodily form, lived a sinless life, endured the hostility and brutality and the shame of the cross, rejected by men, the very people he came to save. He, he endured that and paid a price you couldn't pay. He paid your sin debt, died for you, rose from the dead out of love for you, and offered you his victory through his suffering. He bought you at a price. I, I think of it this way. You know, I used to be my own. And I just look at my experience as a, as a person. I spent over 20 years doing life my own way. Didn't need God. Didn't need, I could just do my own thing. I was a product of our society. I was a typical male in American culture. And I could just do what I want. And I got to the crossroad of conversion. I got to a point in my life where I seen how much destruction that was. To everyone else, it looked fine. I was actually an average guy, so to speak, married, a, boy and a girl and a boy. I have two kids. I have a good job. We just bought our house. Living the American dream, you would see, visually. But inside that, I was just coming apart. I realized as I tried to do all this stuff and have all this stuff, everything I pursued really hurt me more than I realized. And it got to the point where as I'm just sorting all this out, that I literally would say I encountered the love of God. And I responded to his invitation to be born again. So I can look back and see what I could do on my own when I was my own. It, it didn't, didn't produce anything good. So I look at that and go, you know, I know what I can do. Now that I've been born again, now that you're in the family of God, born of, of Jesus Christ, born of the Spirit... You're not your own. It's so counterculture to the American ideal. We have this declaration of independence. We do what we want to do. We're the sovereign nation. We're the, yeah, nationally. Individually, you are the Lord's. You have signed up for that. Lordship means you surrendered to his leadership. It's a whole different thing. It's, it's so funny because doesn't that sound like, oh, now I have to do things his way. What's fascinating is no, now you get to. Formerly, you were shackled to sin. You were, you, were, you were held by these pursuits of pleasure, but now you've been liberated and now you get to, to know the living God. What an amazing thing that he has put fence, he's put framework around your life through scripture, he's put that there for your benefit and saying, now, Dan, let me show you how to live life. Let me show you how to live this new life. And my old nature, this horizontal thinking says, oh, that means I don't get to do certain things. That's true. And thank God he's telling me, don't do it. I can still do it. It says, according to the text, it's just not helpful. So the first thing you want to recognize, I can do a lot of things, but they're not helpful. The relational reality, that's what this is. This is not a, a, a principle that's meant to be cold and sterile and written on stone and followed by heartless people. This is a relational reality. 
What you do can be helpful or hurtful. Correct? Relationally. You know that with the husband and wife. You know that with friends. You know that with any of your interaction. You can do hurtful things or you can choose to do helpful things. And in regards to your relationship with Jesus, how you walk with God, there are certain things you do that that are going to be helpful. And certain things you shouldn't do because why? They're hurtful. You could still do it physically. There's not a, you know, this angel standing there with a sword. When you go to sin, he's like, don't do it. And you're like, okay, I won't. It's much more. It's this, it's this expression of love, not an angel with a sword, but a savior on the cross who says, I love you. Please don't do it. And then that relational reality draws us to a closer willingness, a, a desire to really walk with him. So we see possession here in this verse, verse 12. We're not our own, but also power. I will not be brought under the power of anything. Of any physical pursuit, any uh, feeding of the flesh, any sensual appetite or desire, do not be brought under the power of it. Oh boy, is that not true. I don't want to get into the details. We're not going to have a testimony hour where we each come and share stupid. Where we look back and go, oh man, I started down that road and I knew I could control it. I knew I wouldn't go any further in it. I knew I could stop it. And ultimately, ultimately, you know what happened. You're brought under the power. It's a fascinating thing that what's sold to us as liberation, as opportunity, as joyful and happiness, ends up being entanglement. It ends up becoming incarceration. Literally shackled back to the sins that Jesus freed us from. So what he's saying is here, listen, don't be brought under the power of anything. Anything. And I'll talk a little bit here. Well, I'll just look at verse 13. Foods for the stomach and the stomach for foods. But God will destroy both it and them. The body is not for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. See, bodily appetites, needs, they will be destroyed. And and what's being conveyed there when we consider what's taught in regards to these bodies is that you know, our, our appetites will end. They will pass away. So understand this. We're going to get um, a new body, an eternal body, uh, model 2.0. There will be some similarities, but there won't be the same sensuality, senses, if you would. So in other words, just what would we reference? What, what could we know to be true? How could we kind of get an imagery if we, if we could? Jesus. Jesus went to the grave. He freed the captives. He brought you and I into freedom through his victory. And he bodily appeared to his people. And he had some characteristics. He was recognizable, remember? Although the two guys on the road to Emmaus were in a bit of a funk. And he kind of allowed that cloud over their head a little bit. But then he revealed, he was identifiable. There was a similarity. Uh, Thomas, who we know to be what? What's his nickname? Doubting Thomas, which is, needs to be changed. It's honest Thomas, because he was honest. He said, listen, unless I have some visual verification, and unless I have some eyeball confirmation, unless I can see the mark in the side and the mark on the hand, the arms, I, I have a hard time believing. 
and he's labeled as doubting, but he's like, can we agree he's honest? He's like, okay, but guess what? He's seen it was the Lord. You know, that one time they're gathered in the upper room and there's this resurrected body. Jesus shows up and what do they do? They freak out, which makes sense because he just like, just comes through the wall. Which is interesting because I like to consider, like, wait a minute, are, are those characteristics, are those possibilities for our resurrected bodies? Because uh, here's the thing, we got to go, okay, man, this is going to be exciting. This is interesting. Here, this is, this is what he shows us. These resurrected bodies will have some similarities, but they won't have the restrictions. The atmospheric, the environmental, the, these various things, they won't have temptation to sin because that won't be there. So it's really fascinating, but understand he will destroy the appetites of this body. That, that will be the new body. And that's what I, I say here, but understand the context here, because he goes from not only the stomach, you know, is for the body and the body for the stomach. That's kind of how this body functions in this environment, but those things will be destroyed. And he goes on in, in verse 13, as we looked at is the body is not for sexual immorality. See, sexual appetites are to be constrained and contained according to God's design. We already looked at, don't be brought under the power of any. Having been in this position of able to serve the Lord and follow the Lord and and, and help people in their own journey and, and learn from those people as I go along, it's very interesting because it's, one side, it's sad because I've seen so many lives destroyed, literally, relationally, and families and individuals' lives destroyed because they won't, they won't receive this truth. Don't be brought under the power of anything. And sexual appetite, sexual expression, sexual pursuits, when, when those things are outside God's framework, I've seen lives destroyed. I've seen personalities changed. I've seen just the influence of this, this overwhelming appetite that's been fed and fed and fed. Like, I don't want to do this anymore. Guess what? Travel down that road so far, these appetites start destroying the people. And notice what he says. The body, it's not for sexual immorality, but for the Lord. And the Lord for the body. Look in verse 14 and let's take, take this, maybe open this up a little more. And God both raised up the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. What's he mean he raised up the Lord? We know he ascended. We know he inhabits heaven. But what do you think is being conveyed? I, I believe what's being said to you and me, God is not against the body. He has given you a body that you may glorify him. You know, we were told in scripture that we're, we're created in his image and his likeness to glorify him. Jesus, who is God, took on a body. He literally came in these frames, if you would. He lived a sinless life. He freely gave his body as a payment for our sin and rose from the dead, appeared bodily to his followers, and ascended bodily into heaven. God is not against these bodies. Sometimes as Christians, we, we, we think that just this body is all bad. Guess what? It's your only option, okay? <laughs> That's what you got right now. So make the best of it. And what I mean is, is actually live in a way that you experience his purpose. You understand his design. God is not against these bodies. He has made these bodies 
And he's made known to you and me how to live the new life in these old bodies. See, sometimes we're, we're so heavenly minded, we're so no earthly good. In other words, we've got our, our mind so fixed on how it's going to be, we're not living how we should be. And really, just deal with today, okay? That's God's instruction to us. Just, hey, take it a day at a time. You deal with the day. You'll face temptation. You'll face struggles. You'll face trials. You'll face opposition. Keep your eyes on me. Learn how to operate the body in a way that glorifies the Lord. So, verse 15. In light of glorifying God with our bodies, do you not know that your bodies are a member of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a harlot? He he says this six times in this chapter. In 20 verses, he makes this statement. Do do you not know? Basically, he's really saying, listen, just think about it. Just, just you, because he said, do you not know, because he knew that they knew. <laughs> you know what I mean? It wasn't like, uh, they're like, no one told us. It's literally one of those framed questions that says, you know where I'm going with this. You understand that. You, we've, t- we've talked about this. Do you not know? And here's what I would say. Think about your relationship with Jesus. Not mystically and off in the heavens, But right now, contemporarily, he came into this world. He died for you. He rose from the grave with the spirit of God, the the person, the Holy Spirit. We're going to talk about it here in a little bit. We've already read it. Indwells you. Jesus is with you. Think about your relationship with Jesus. We used to do uh, a Saturday night. Our, Our young adults actually met on Saturday night some years ago. And it was fascinating. It was a really exciting season for Calvary Chapel Mountain Home and uh, even some lifelong friends that, you know, I met during that time. And, and it was a lot of new believers, a lot of young adults trying to figure out how to live, how to have fun, and what the parameters and the framework were for fun. And so a lot of our conversation was, was deep and stirring, and a lot of it was just silly. But sometimes the conversations went the wrong direction. We had this thing later called the too far jar. And anytime you went too far, you put money in the jar. Anytime that joke was just too far, then you had to pay. And it was a result of it's just, you know, kind of like processing this. And I loved engaging. It was a really, I love that opportunity of engaging with people that are really honest about sorting this out. But I asked, I asked him to do this. From now on, because quite honestly, some of the guys were cheap. They weren't paying. <laughs> but nonetheless, it wasn't the money. I said, from now on, before you present that joke, that thought, that off-color comment to the group, run it by the Lord first. Can you imagine doing it this way? Hey, Holy Spirit, hey, did you hear one about the guy that walked into the bar? And you're like, and then he's like, <laughs> he's like, it's not funny, Dan. It's not funny. It's like, okay, well, I guess I probably shouldn't say it to the rest of the, to the, my group. You see what I'm saying? What if we allowed, it's so simple and street level. Can we agree? What if that thought or that attitude or that pride or whatever this, well, what if we thought about the relationship with Jesus first? What if we run it by him first before we go public with it? I, I found that you, you, you'll say, you'll be going like, hmm, I know better. Do you not know? Oh, I know. I think I'll not go there. I think I'll do it differently. Let's jump into verse 16 and 17. Do you not know? 
He continues what he developed there in verse 15 about the, the, the reality of this um, aberrant sexual behavior, this, this going outside of God's design. Do you not know that he who is joined to a harlot is one body with her? For the two, he says, shall become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord is one spirit with him. See, the lie of our age was, was very vivid and loud in the first century. It's been that way since the departure from the Garden of Eden, where the deceiver, the one who wants to mislead you and get you to believe anything contrary to the will of God, will lie to you about what sex is. Uh, a terminology we use that's really kind of awkward because it's not accurate, but I understand to some degree the context when it's properly spoken, is this. Oh, they made love. When it's referring to sex, right? So really, they made love is how you describe sex? Because sex is more than physical contact. Sex involves your emotion, it involves your mind, it involves your personality, it involves your memory. And the lie of our day is that everything is okay. If it feels good, do it. It's just okay. That's, that's you know, because it's, it's a human experience and everybody experiences it. So why would you restrict this, this pursuit of pleasure? And the lie says everything is okay. No, you are joined with that person. Not just physically, that's true. He's quoting out of Genesis. When a, when, a, when a man would leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, when there's this intercourse, this physical engagement, but it's more than just physical. See, it, it's like you're with this person and then you're not, and then when they, you would have another person, and then you're tore apart, and it just, it just continues to just tear people apart. It's like you're tore apart, then you join another, and you're tore apart, and so it goes until you're relationally, relationally, relationally shredded and emotionally numbed. That's what happens with this current common presentation, almost mandate for sex any way you want to describe it yourself. You end up emotionally numbed, then the pleasure is not there. So new experiences are sought. New forms of immorality are welcomed. What you thought you would never do, you now do, and much worse. But you are joined to Christ. You're not your own. You know, the sad truth in our day is sexuality is an obsession and it's pushed in ways that are contrary to its design. And the end result is destroyed lives, destroyed people. What seemingly is supposed to be the epitome of the human experience, it actually tears people up. People are left pursuing and doing things they never thought they would do. I've talked to so many people that are just wrecked. They're ruined because they pursued these things and they got involved in this relationship or they got involved in this practice or they joined this thing and they just, they got, they, they look back and they go, I never, never thought I would do this. I never thought I would look at that. I never thought I would go there. I never could, back here, no, I never, now I'm here. And they're dealing with this, this, this disaster in the pursuit of pleasure. It was all a lie that you can just do however, it's fine. And then guess what? You get there and the enemy says, this serves you right. You knew better. It's your fault. Thank God that you and I 
are cleansed, justified, and sanctified. Thank God that these descriptions we've seen in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, I believe it's like verses 9 and 10, of all these things that are aberrant and the, the rebellion towards God, that he takes the group of us there that's that, and he brings us into the, his kingdom. He cleanses us, washes us, justifies us, and sanctifies us. I'm so glad. So some who have experienced this heartbreak, even as Christians, know this. God is for you, not against you. He cleanses you. He nurtures you. He takes care of you. He teaches you and leads you day by day what this new life is. Even though you have such a disaster of effect, right? I mean, because when we recognize, listen, these things do not benefit. They're not helpful. When we're willing to say, what price will I pay? And not leave it to your own perception. Well, what price will I pay? Nah, no big deal. I'll quit when I want. I'll only do it for a little while. I'll only look once. I'll only do this. Well, guess what? You, you've already bought the lie. But if I'm willing to say, man, God says don't do it that way. And I believe he has my best in mind. And I believe the reason he says that is hard for me to grasp right now, but I believe he's right. And I'm going to leave it in this fashion, in this manner, in this framework. It is the thing that in our culture, probably more than anything else, that just created such a disaster. It's created a disaster in our values. It affected what we do as, as a culture. We're in a horrible place as a culture. And you with kids, those of you who have younger children in, in, in elementary school and in well, high school, college, you're in a dilemma. Because you're in a culture that says any form of sex is okay. Your kids are being taught graphically through, through books, through education, through the ones you trusted as, as school, in the school system. They're being taught all these aberrant behaviors. And what are we going to do? I'd love to be able to give you this outline of what we could do. I don't really know. But we got to do something. We can't just assume, I'm just going to pray and hope it all works out in the end. Well, we pursue our jobs, or we pursue our, our dreams, our own things, and hoping that our kids survive, a culture that's telling them all these things are normal, and it's leading them to this road of disaster. And then, and then what are we going to do? Do we, do we say, oh, that, you know, that's a bummer. Man, it's a mess. But notice what he says. Listen, you are, you are Christ. Don't pursue this. Don't give in to this. Don't tolerate this. You're not of this world. That is, the world will do that, but you're not one of them. Notice what he, how he gives us instruction. Verse 18, flee sexual immorality. Every sin that a man does is outside the body, but he who commits sexual immorality sins against his own body. Literally sinning against himself. Flee sexual immorality. Ditch it. Dump it. Get away from it. Drop the practice. Call it what it is. Stop calling it love. Stop calling it, you know, liberty. Stop calling it some way of connecting with people. It is sin. It is sin. Sin outside God's design for, or sexuality outside of God's design is sin. It doesn't matter. I mean, I've heard so many silly explanations. Well, this type of homosexuality is different because it was with the, was the, the, the temple worship. And this, no, stop it. Stop it. Stop trying to manipulate the word of God to fit the pursuit of pleasure. And start calling it like it is. It's sin. 
And when we're willing to be bold and courageous and deal with ourselves and not point a finger at others and deal with sin as it is sin, when we'll flee the temptation of it, when we'll flee the presence of it, then then honestly we'll experience the touch of God. We'll experience his work in our life. Flee sexual immorality. You're sinning against yourself. Why do you keep hurting yourself? See, I've got five pretty good digits on this hand matching up on the other side. So if I take a hammer and I inadvertently smash a finger, it's going to hurt. And if I then go to use that hammer again, and I go to pound something in, in the same way, in the same manner, I'm going to smash that finger again. At some point, I got to say, hmm, I need to stop doing dumb. I need to do things differently. I keep hurting myself. And some will just keep smashing fingers. There's a point where like, man, I, I, I just stop hurting yourself. You're sinning against yourself. You're bringing this pain in your body. Just park it. Do you not know that your body's the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own? Do I not realize the living God who created the world and spoke the universes into to, to formation and placed them, the living God who saved my soul, who, who literally died for me, the living God is with me. He literally indwells me. I can't grasp it. I've been trying to get a clear 100% hold on this for 30 plus years, and I can't get a handle on it. That the totality and how it affects my life and how it will change my habits and it will affect my, my thought processes. I'm getting there a little, but I'm not there yet. That he is with me. That he's with you. The Holy Spirit, he empowers you. He enables you. Do you not know that he indwells you? He's just not inhabiting the planet. He's indwelling the person who is born again. He empowers you. He enables each one of us to live according to his design, according to his purpose. God is for you. Even more, God is with you. A born again Christian you're called, you're enabled, you're empowered, and you're encouraged to live the new life. Don't just live the old way. Okay, I'm glad I'm saved. Now I can keep sinning because, you know, God's gracious and he forgives me so I can sin all the more. The grace will abound. No, no, no. When you're born again, you don't want anything to do with sin. You will be tempted. You'll still struggle. You're still in this world. But when you start recognizing, I'm not my own. The biggest problem many Christians face right now, and in this room, they'll hear this message. This truth is very obvious. The, the biggest problem we face is that we think we're our own. We have forgotten or not, not really fully embraced this truth. You are not your own. You were. But now you've received his lordship. You receive his leadership. You're not your own. What a liberty. I know it sounds like a constraint, a loss, but it's a gain. I am no longer constrained by these pursuit of pleasures. I am now liberated to know the Lord. What an amazing thing. I can now, we, you and I, we can just, he's with us. You were bought at a price, therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. This is not a legalistic mandate. It's a loving invitation. Because of what he's done for you, live for him. And live for him. It just, it, it, we'll close out. The worship team will work their way up. You and I will close by looking at Romans chapter 12. 
In Romans chapter 12, we have 11 chapters leading up to this truth, this reality, this exhortation. Revealing God's love, revealing his, his justice, revealing the hope of the gospel. And we read in verse 1 of chapter 12 in Romans, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. If you have, I believe it's the NIV translation. They have an interesting translation there, and it conveys it really, I think, beautifully. Which is your reasonable act of worship. Which your, it's your reasonable expression. What is that? When you recognize what God has done, when you, you present your bodies because of the mercies of God, and then there's this volition, this will that's imparted because of the relational truth. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. That you may test, that you may confirm, that you may prove personally and deeply, prove what is that acceptable, good, and perfect will of God. you stand with me? And we'll pray. 1 Corinthians 6, we've seen a lot of beautiful truths in a, in a, in a stern reminder. But chapter 12 of Romans also gives us clarity. God, that we would be your people in light of your truth with the knowledge, personal and deep and intimate, the knowledge of your forgiveness, that we're born again because of what you have done. Teach us how to present individually and personally our bodies to you as an expression of worship, as an act of gratitude. If there's anyone here that you're, you're still at a quandary, you're kind of processing and wondering, will I trust God or not? And who is this God I should trust? Are there many gods or one God? And I'll just present to you, there's one creator, one God, and one savior. And they're all the same. God offers you new life. He invites you into a relationship with him. See, you can't bring your garbage. You gotta let go of it. Your sin, your rebellion, you gotta admit it, you gotta own it, but then you gotta let go of it. And it's done like this where you just say, Jesus, I, I need your forgiveness. I'm realizing and I would recognize that you are God and you came and died for my sins according to the word, according to the truth. You rose again, conquering death and hell. Therefore, your life it can be my life. So I put my faith, my trust in you, Jesus. And I'm scared, I'm afraid. I don't even know what I'm saying. In a sense, I don't know how to live this new life. And I would ask by faith, Jesus, teach me this new life. But I not go back to where I used to be and what I used to do but I live this new life knowing that I'm yours, that I'm not my own, that I, I'm bought by you and you have forgiven me. Teach me, God, not to conform to this world. Transform me for your glory. Thank you, God. Thank you for your grace. Thank you that you lead us. Thank you that you continue to call us close to you. May we not be lied to by the enemy who wants to keep us away, but may we humble ourselves and come to you joyfully and thankfully, for you are good. It's in your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. Amen.